Imagine for a moment you are talking to someone about your Christian faith. Somehow the subject has come up and you've been explaining what you believe. And this other person says to you, so you're telling me that Jesus is God. Where would I go in the New Testament to find out about that? I wonder what New Testament book you would send them to. You might well send them to one of the four Gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life. There is plenty there that points to his deity. Or you might point them to one of Paul's letters. There's plenty of evidence there too. But the New Testament book that shows Jesus' deity most clearly is probably the book of Revelation. We're going to see some of that this morning as we turn again to Revelation chapter 1, which we began to look at last week. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1233, and in the large print, 1913. We're going to read from chapter 1, verse 9. Down to the end of the chapter, verse 20. We noticed last week, this book contains revelation and it contains prophecy. And we also saw last week, this is a letter. It's a letter written to Christians facing the struggles and temptations of everyday life. And in verse 9, we read, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now, look, 
I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. And this passage presents us with the Lord of the church. But first we learn some more about John, the one who wrote this book. Last week we heard that Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. That is an amazing privilege. We are a kingdom. But here we learn, being a kingdom does not mean we're going to live like kings and queens in this life. It does not mean this life is going to be pain-free or trouble-free. Look what John says in verse 9 to these Christians. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Christians are a kingdom and we suffer. And that means we are called to patient endurance. Chapters 2 and 3 will describe the various forms suffering can take and the various ways then that we have to patiently endure. But here, just the plain fact is stated. The church of Jesus Christ is the most privileged people on earth and the church suffers. And so the church must patiently endure. And you'll notice, John is not talking here about suffering for doing wrong. The kingdom and the suffering and the patient endurance are ours in Jesus. We're a kingdom because we belong to Jesus. We suffer because we belong to Jesus. And thankfully, because we belong to Jesus, we are given the ability to endure patiently. We're not left to our own devices when it comes to enduring. God supplies us with the power for that. And John wants his readers to know he is not writing to them from some ivory tower. He is not cut off himself from the painful realities of life. He is our brother and companion in the suffering and the blessings of the kingdom. He too faces the challenge of patient endurance. In what way? Well, he goes on to say in verse 9, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here's Patmos. And here it is in relation to Athens, Turkey, and Crete. 
that helps you get your bearings. In New Testament times, part of the island of Patmos was a prison colony. This was where people were sent if they were considered to be socially disruptive people. They were sent to Patmos to work in stone quarries that were on the island. Apparently that is how John has ended up on Patmos. And if we ask, well, what was John doing that was so socially disruptive? He tells us. He was living as a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. He says he is there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, because he was sharing and he was living out the good news about Jesus. John lived at a time when that got you into trouble. As it does in many parts of the world today. So the book of Revelation is not only written to Christians who suffer, it comes to us through the pen of a Christian who suffers. Everything about this book is in touch with real life. John has told us about his situation, and now he explains how this book came about in verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The Lord's day is Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And the early Christians chose that day as the day they would meet together to worship Jesus and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Here John says, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. So apparently, although John is in exile, he has continued to worship at the time when he knows his brothers and sisters are going to be worshipping. And on this particular occasion, though, something extra happens. He is in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads John into a state of prophetic vision. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel uses very similar words to describe what happened to him. But notice that in this state, before John sees anything, he hears a sound, a voice like a trumpet. In other words, it was clear and it was piercing. John could not miss it. And the reason the voice comes first is to tell John he's been given a special responsibility here. What he's about to see is not for him alone. So he's not to just let this pass him by. He has a responsibility then to write down what he sees for the church. These seven churches, seven real churches that are mentioned who we saw last week, are also representative of the whole church. So this book is John's record then of what he saw and heard for the church. It's a vision for the church. 
And what John is to write is not just what he sees here in chapter 1. He's going to be shown much more than this. It's described down in verse 19 as what is now and what will take place later. So John is going to see a mixture of transcendent present realities and also future realities. But so far he hasn't seen anything. He's just heard the voice like a trumpet. But now as he turns toward the voice, the first thing he sees are seven golden lampstands in verse 12. These are big things like this. The kind of lampstands that need oil, if they're to run, that was the fuel that kept the flame going. And the background to this, like most of what we find in Revelation, comes from the Old Testament. Back in the book of Exodus, shortly after the Israelites left Egypt, God gave Moses detailed plans for building a tabernacle. That was a tent where God would be present among his people. And one of the items Moses was to place in that tent was a golden lampstand. It stood in God's presence. And now, as he shows John this vision, God is both explaining and also developing the significance of the lampstand. It symbolizes God's people. No longer just believing Israelites, but God's people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So, instead of just one lampstand, now we have seven. And down in verse 20, the meaning is spelled out for us. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Not just seven local fellowships, but the whole church. We saw last time numbers have meaning in this book. And the number seven indicates completeness. These seven churches represent the whole church of Jesus Christ. And as we think about these seven lampstands which are symbolizing the church, let's remember the tabernacle where the one lampstand stood. God was truly present there among his people. And look what we read here in verse 13. John says, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The focus here is not on the churches themselves. That will come in chapters 2 and 3. The focus here is on the one who is with his church. He is among the lampstands. Picture that in your mind. In the Old Testament, one of the priest's jobs was to tend the lampstand to make sure it had the oil it needed to burn brightly and keep on burning. And here we're to picture someone moving among the seven lampstands, tending to them. Chapters 2 and 3 will show us what that involves. 
It sometimes involves encouraging the churches and sometimes correcting and warning them. But the point is, the churches are not left to their own devices. They are being tended. Who is the one moving among them? Well, we need to know that the description here is drawing particularly on two chapters from the book of Daniel. Two visions that Daniel had, recorded in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Earlier we read some extracts from Daniel chapter 7. But when Revelation draws on the Old Testament, it does not just copy it. It develops it. And that's what's happening here. Daniel, you remember, saw two figures. But here, this one figure that John sees has the characteristics of both the figures Daniel saw. Daniel saw one like a son of man, a human being. And he saw the Ancient of Days, Almighty God. Here John sees a son of man who has all the characteristics of the Ancient of Days. This is a God-man. It's Jesus Christ, God the Son. Now he is not to be confused with God the Father. Later on he will say, I was dead and now I'm alive. That's not true of the Father. And yet when it comes to power and authority, Jesus can be described in the same ways as the Father. We'll see he's described in quite a bit of detail here. And let me say this description is telling us things about the character and position of Jesus. We are not supposed to take this as a literal description of what he physically looks like. In chapter 5, Jesus is going to be described as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. If we try to combine that description with this one, it's almost impossible. But we're not supposed to do that. These different pictures of Jesus are telling us not what he looks like, but what he is like. They're showing us different aspects of who he is. So yes, picture this in your mind. Let it teach you about who Jesus is. But don't expect to meet someone in heaven who has a sword coming out of his mouth, whose voice sounds like a waterfall, and whose feet are on fire. What this picture tells us is that Jesus is the man who is God. John sees in verse 13, he's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. In Roman society, the longer your robe, the higher your rank. Only the emperor had a robe that went down to his feet. So here John sees one who has the highest rank. He has a golden sash around his chest. That was the high priest's uniform. And we've already seen this figure tends the lampstands just like the priest did. 
and verse 14. The hair on his head was white, like wool, as white as snow. In our society, the older you are, the less respect you seem to get. Increasingly, I think, the elderly are treated in our society as if they're past it. But the opposite was true in biblical times. The aged were honored for their experience and for their wisdom. There are still some societies today where that's the case. China would be one example. And here, that wisdom and experience are being symbolized for us with white hair. Sometimes that comes to us before we get wisdom and experience. But generally, for most people, it comes along with those things. But at the same time, we are not to imagine Jesus is standing here somehow weakened with age. For many of us, it's not just experience and wisdom that come with gray hair. Weakness and frailty often come with it too. But not for Jesus. His eyes are like blazing fire. He is full of life. He is perfect in wisdom and experience, but he doesn't suffer from the decreased vitality that often comes along with wisdom and experience. His feet, verse 15, are like bronze glowing in a furnace or refined in a furnace. He stands before us in absolute blazing purity. And his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. That is exactly the way God's voice sounded to Ezekiel in the visions he received. It's a voice of fearsome majesty and power. In his right hand, verse 16, he holds seven stars. We'll come back to these stars later on. But whatever they are, they are in the power of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to say they're in his right hand. They are under his control. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp, double-edged sword. Here we have confirmation. We are not being given a description of what Jesus actually looks like. This picture is describing who he is. So what does this tell us about him? Very simply, it tells us he is the judge. His word rules. He pronounces the definitive verdict over each one of us. His word has the power to condemn or to acquit. The book of Isaiah prophesied a servant of the Lord who would have this power. John's gospel tells us Jesus claimed that power for himself when he was on earth. He said the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And here, the risen Jesus is shown to have that judging power. 
His word is like a two-edged sword. It can acquit us or condemn us eternally. And his face is like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Have you ever tried to stare straight into the burning sun? You can't. Not without burning your eyes out. In the Old Testament, Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my full glory. You can't see my face. For no one can see me and live. Now we're showing that Jesus Christ has that same glory. The four Gospels show us a Jesus whose full glory is veiled during his time on earth. But even during that time, John was given a brief glimpse of Jesus' full glory at the Transfiguration, along with Peter and James. But by and large, Jesus hid his glory on earth. That was part of what it meant for him to humble himself for our salvation. But that glory always belonged to him. And it will never be veiled again. It's wonderful for us to know that Jesus is our brother and our friend. It's great to know that he shares our humanity. But let's never forget, he is not the same as us. He blazes with the full glory of God. like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is the one who is with his church. A man with all the authority, purity, and power of God. If you and I were shown what John has just been shown, we would react the way John reacts. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. A true glimpse of God's glory will sober us like nothing else. He is our friend, but he is not good old Jesus, our mate. So yes, it is appropriate for our worship to be joyful. Of course it is. We have 10,000 reasons to sing. And if we have any sense of who we are worshiping, then our worship will also be serious. I don't mean stuffy. I don't mean uptight. I'm not talking about standing like a statue. I mean, we will worship in a way that acknowledges the significance of what we're doing and the glory of the one we're worshiping. It is possible to worship with serious joy. I think that's what a true vision of Jesus leads us to do. And throughout this book, we will have glimpses of what that kind of worship looks like 
and sounds like. Here in our passage, John has grasped the seriousness very well. He has been confronted with God the judge, the one whose eyes see every corner of our hearts, the one whose word decides our eternal future. That's who John has seen, and he has fallen to the ground in awe. And now, here comes the joy. Because John discovers that the one who is with his church is also the one who is for his church. Not only present with us, but for us. Look how he deals with John in verse 17. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Meaning death and the grave. And we might ask, well, why is John supposed to be reassured by that? How is that supposed to help him not be afraid? Doesn't that make it worse? John is supposed to be reassured because the Jesus who holds those keys is the same Jesus who loves John and has freed John from his sins by his blood. So a glimpse of God's glory is always going to sober us, but it need not crush us. If we're trusting in Christ's death for the forgiveness of our sin, if we're living for him as our Lord, then we don't need to fear his word of condemnation. We know he is for us. And we don't need to fear the sufferings that might be ahead of us. His right hand is for us. That's a way of saying his power is at work for our good. When we kneel before the cross in repentance and faith, then we discover this God of blazing glory is our God. His power and authority are at work for us. And one aspect of Jesus being for his church is that his angels are for his church. Earlier in John's vision, he saw Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand. Here in verse 20, John is told that just as the seven lampstands represent the seven churches... So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. What does that mean? Well, some people have taken this to be a reference to the pastors of the seven churches. Maybe. The Greek word is angelos. And its basic meaning is simply messenger. John the Baptist is referred to in the New Testament as the angelos who goes before the Lord. So it is possible 
Verse 20 is referring to pastors. But I don't think it's very likely. Why? Well, for one thing, pastors are never called angels anywhere else in the Bible. And more importantly, the book of Revelation is full of the spiritual beings we normally refer to as angels. They're everywhere in this book. They're referred to about 60 times. And I don't think it's likely the beginning of the book uses the word in a different way from the rest of the book. So I think the word angels here means angels. Some Christians get too obsessed with spiritual beings. But it is equally wrong to downplay them to the point where we almost deny they exist. The Bible does not give us masses of information about angels. So we are going beyond Scripture if we start building whole angelologies, writing books that try to describe their activity in great detail. The Bible doesn't give us that detail. But it does give us enough information to know angels are real and they are active in God's world. We've already seen how this passage draws in the book of Daniel. And in his visions, Daniel was confronted with what we could genuinely call guardian angels. Angels who have responsibility for various nations. And so one of the angels that the Lord mentions is the angel Michael. He says to Daniel, Michael has responsibility for the nation of Israel. And so it's not a big leap for Jesus to say here that certain angels have been assigned to each local church. Those angels are part of his provision for his church. It's good for us to be aware in our worship and our service here, it's not just you and me. We have heavenly company. One of heaven's representatives is with us. That should encourage us and it should sober us. And it should give us a sense of transcendence. Greater realities. We're not just having another meeting here this morning. And what goes on during the week is not being ignored by heaven. God cares enough about this church to assign one of his divine agents to us. The purpose of every lampstand is to give light. And that is our purpose as a church. God has placed us as a lampstand in this area. We are here to spread the light of the truth about Jesus and the life that's to be found in Jesus. That is our purpose and we are not called to fulfill it alone. That would be impossible.
But not only has God involved the angels in our work, which in a sense is the minor aspect of this, the major aspect is that the Lord of the church himself is personally present with us. We've seen he moves among us by his spirit, tending to us. And we have seen that he is for us. So let's pray in light of what we have heard. Father, we ask you to help us grasp these things. That we are not alone. Yes, we have seen that along with the privilege of being a kingdom, there will be suffering in one form or another. We realize we wouldn't be called to patient endurance if there was nothing for us to endure. But we thank you for this vision, showing us how things really are, showing us that the Lord of the church is with us and he is for us, reminding us that he has the wisdom to know what we need better than we know ourselves. And he has all the power to supply what we need. And so, as your people, we bow in awe. But not in fear. We see his majesty. And we also hear his voice telling us, do not be afraid. We thank you. Amen. Let's sing together, Behold the Lord, and then Victor's Christ.